Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hey, it's Colin here. I want to tell you about something brand new from our friends over at the On Poly team. It's the On Poly newsletter, and you can get it in your inbox twice a week. It's a newsletter brought to you by the people who make the On Poly podcast, which is hosted by my buds, John Michael McGrath and Steve Pakin. If you haven't listened to On Poly yet, you really should. You've never heard Ontario politics being discussed this way before. And now you can get behind the scenes of the podcast with their brand new On Poly newsletter. Subscribe now. Go to tvo.org slash newsletter and subscribe today. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today I'm speaking with our producers Chantal Berganza and Matthew O'Mara about two documentary series that shed a new light on some very complicated issues. We're asking, how does the passage of time affect what we consider to be true, especially when it comes to high-profile news stories? Today we're talking about Leaving Neverland and Lorena. Both came out earlier this year and are part of a trend within recent documentary films and podcasts they look at cases from decades ago and how our understanding of those events have changed with the passing of time, like the documentary O.J. Made in America or the podcast Slow Burn. Leaving Neverland is a two-part documentary from HBO that features serious allegations of child sexual abuse by Michael Jackson. The two men featured in the doc, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, were only children when they alleged Jackson molested them. Everybody wanted to meet Michael or be with Michael. And then he likes you. I was seven years old. Michael asked, do you and the family want to come to Neverland? It's a difficult film to sit through, and coming almost ten years after Jackson's death, it's a hard pill to swallow for many of the singer's fans. Then there's Lorena, an Amazon Prime docuseries that examines the infamous case of Lorena Bobbitt, the woman who in 1994 cut off the penis of her husband, John Wayne Bobbitt. This was a modern love story. Boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, Boy marries girl, girl cuts off boy's penis. That story became a tabloid sensation and was fodder for comedians and late-night talk show hosts looking for an easy joke. But as we learned through watching Lorena's testimony at her trial and in interviews with witnesses, her reasons for mutilating her husband were far more complicated. And the series paints a very troubling portrait of John Wayne Bobbitt and the physical and sexual abuse he subjected Lorena to during their marriage. And heads up, the topics we discuss today look at child sexual abuse and rape. Hello, Chantel and Matt. Hey. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Thanks again. for having us. So let's just start with Lorena. What were your first impressions of the Lorena Bobbitt case when you were, I guess, how old? Eight, nine when that happened? I would have been six um, at the time. And I definitely don't remember any kind of news coverage of it because I wasn't watching the news at that age. Um, but it was very much a schoolyard joke like that's how I understood and remembered it um, and to be honest hadn't really thought about it until this documentary was announced mm-hmm. late last you? year what about you Matthew well two to three years old probably so I don't remember anything really about it um, but for me there is one really tangible memory and this comes from when I'm a little bit older and it comes from a Weird Al song uh, where uh, there's a reference to Lorena Bobbitt in uh, a very kind of trite manner where she shows up with like a bloody knife in one scene. 
There was this guy who made his wife so mad one night that she cut off his wiener. And so that's kind of my context coming into this doc of just like a guy had an appendage cut off, and uh, that's really all I kind of knew. Same with me. I mean, I was a little older than you guys, um, so I have a, a bit of a clearer memory of it. I mean, this was around the time of um, tabloid television, I guess, was just getting started. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I thought of it as, as a joke, too. Uh, you know, when I'd go to grocery stores, I'd see the People magazine cover, and they'd always have some, like, image of uh, Lorena Bobbitt or the Menendez brothers or any of those figures at the time, and then, early, I guess, 93, 94. And, uh, yeah, I didn't really... I mean, other than the fact that she had cut her husband's penis off, I didn't really know much more than that. I didn't really want to know much more than that because it's pretty disturbing. Um, but it's interesting that the films, the series sort of starts with uh, Lorena Bobbitt, you know, 20, 20 years or so later on Steve Harvey's show. Yeah. And it's a, it's, he's treating it as a joke still. She's kind of laughing about it. Yeah. Can, can I ask you a couple questions? <laughs> so, but what, what made you take it, though? I mean, you cut it off, and, and I was insane. Where are you going with it? What's, what's, I don't know. I mean, that's how the reaction of, yeah. Why you leave with it? That's what I. <laughs> I don't look. I'm not really no. sure how I want to receive this. I don't know. <laughs> it's um. But when you threw it out the window, though, yeah. that's the part. Now we got to go find it. Yes. You know, who you out here got grass on it? I'm trying. They did. They did. They had grass on it. Why do you think this is, it elicits such like a humorous response amongst people? Uh, there are a lot of moments from, you know, that time in that decade that have been treated as a joke for a very long time. And I thought it was interesting that the first installment of the series not only gets at that and shows you the examples but even some of the people that they interview are laughing um it's the only episode that has laughing she's laughing she's laughing at certain points i mean when they get to the point where they talk about how um the cops found uh his penis in the the field and nobody wanted to pick it up (laughs) she's laughing when she's telling that story um and so are the cops when they're recounting it and the guy who was working at the the corner store with the ice like it just everyone thought it was hilarious um everything else around it not so much well i, I want to talk about the media aspect of this case because i think that's i think that's kind of the big story here is is how the media covered uh the trials of both john wayne bobbitt and lorena bobbitt um why do you think this was such a big media story i guess there's a, a sort of sensational aspect to it in some ways where you know a person's uh, penis had been cut off and people sort of pounced on that But I think there was a moment in the documentary where, or the the series where things kind of shifted, where uh, for a long time, Lorena Bobbitt's name wasn't known by the media, wasn't known by the press. She was like uh, kept anonymous because it was a rape case. It was... uh, So she, she she accused him of rape. Yes. And he did go on trial for that. Yes. Beforehand. um, A trial that was not covered the same way that her trial was. Um, and I think, so the the convention amongst reporters was that they didn't name her mm-hmm. until they'd found out that she had hired, a, a, I guess, a media representative. Yeah. Um, but the way that that was taken was they saw it as like, 
okay, well, she wants she's hired a publicist, so she, she wants, wants her name, she wants her yeah. name out there. Except except it was the exact opposite, where she had this publicist hired in order to protect her, to say to give to people like his card and say, I don't have anything to say. Please contact this man. He will talk to you and and see what they can do. And he was hired for her. I mean, she didn't even seek any kind of representation to no. begin with. She had no idea what was going on. Um, didn't really know who to turn to for support went to the only person who she felt she could trust. I mean, they mention this in the doc is that she is naive. And they do mention that about her, that she's like naive and innocent. She also, like, English wasn't her first language. She was clearly being taken advantage of by everyone around her. I, I think also that was interesting is uh, in Lorena Bobbitt's trial, I mean, there were cameras in the courtroom. The scene that stuck out for me uh, in cover in watching her trial is when she's on the witness stand and talking about the abuse that she suffered and that just blew me away because, again, as a 12, 13-year-old kid when this was going on, I had no idea about any of that stuff. Watching it now uh, was really uh, uh, astonishing. And it was also astonishing given the overall climate around the case. I mean, we had comedians making fun of it. We had late-night sh- late talk show hosts uh, making fun of it. Howard Stern. The fundraiser. Oh, my God. Made a fu- yeah. Did a fundraiser for John Wayne Bobbitt. I mean, it was quite disgusting. Robin, who's next? Our final judge, Howard, a man 20 stitches away from oblivion, John Wayne Bobbitt. The great John Wayne Bobbitt. Seriously, what happened to you is horrible, and that's why we're raising money for you tonight. I sort of also started to wonder about John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt today. You know, I mean, they're, I guess, both in their late 40s, maybe early 50s. And uh, at very different places in their lives, uh, John Wayne Bobbitt uh, seems to be not in a good place. Not in a good place. No. He didn't have a very good uh, post penis cutting uh, life. He went into porn. Uh, he tried doing some, I guess, work at a brothel. He was uh, accused of raping another woman, I think. And. Um, on the other hand, uh, Lorena, uh, she committed the rest of her life to, I guess, helping women who've been abused uh, in domestic relationships, and and she uh, got married, she had a kid. So uh, they both took very different paths in their lives. I wonder what you think of that, Chantal. Um, I think it's interesting that, not interesting and maybe not surprising, but I mean, even in the way that we've been referring to Lorena now, she goes by her name before. Like, she goes by Lorena Gallo now, right. not... Bobbitt, not even Bobbitt. though yeah. we She's can't talk as... about her without calling her Lorena Bobbitt, because that's the reason why we know who she is. Yeah. Um, so she took this thing, this extremely traumatic time in her life, um, the way that she had to heal from it, and um, made it a really big part of how she was going to move forward with her life in mm-hmm. a productive way. Did anything surprise you about this this story, this case? I'm not sure if you two had this as well, but I was kind of shocked to see John Wayne there in the documentary Yeah, as, as one of the speakers. I wasn't really expecting that for whatever reason. I, I thought it would be just focused on her, but to see him there and, you know, to have him part of the story and then see, you know, his, his life's trajectory for whatever reason, that was very surprising to me. It's hard to be surprised by a story that I didn't know very well to begin with just because of, you know, my position. Like, I a story that I didn't have very much access to or the access I had to it was, was limited. Um, but just in watching the series, seeing 
having him there and having him answer these questions that he answered the same way in during the trial still denying things in the same way even with the benefit of you know as a viewer you can you can see that there are things that he's clearly lying about and that he still lies about them in the same way and that you know there are things about this man that that have not changed mm-hmm. um i guess there was value in that even if he was committed to telling the same thing like repeating the same thing over and over um even now 25 years later yeah matt uh, do you think this series corrects the record to some extent I think within the four-part series, it, it's uh, a total of about what about like eight hours long or so, uh, something like that. They go very in depth into the entire story. Um, they cover the trials, they cover the media around the trials, they cover, you know, um, what their neighbors had heard, what their neighbors had experienced. I think they do a really great job in uncovering a truth from this story um, that wasn't told from the Weird Al song that I had heard <laughs> when I was a kid. Imagine that your context for a story involving like rape and abuse is like a comedic song. That needs correction. And, and they do an amazing job here in you know retelling a story and involving, I think, as many people as they possibly could in getting it right. Uh, so, Chantal, do you think this doc series could have come out any time, at any other time, even, you know, before Me Too, say, like, could this have come out in 2015 or something like that? It probably could have. I don't know if it would have looked the same way or if it would have been the same product. I don't know if Amazon Prime Studios would have commissioned a four-part series on it, would have asked for a deep dive. I don't know if someone like Jordan Peele would have signed on as an executive producer, you know, himself with... Um, a career of being a comedian, but only now, and not a comedian from 1994, um, making jokes about Lorena, but asking us to instead look at the jokes that we have told about Lorena and ask ask ourselves. Yeah, because I mean, even his films like Get Out and Us are sort of you know, asking you to look deeper into like things like race, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a film that I think asks you to look deeper in. I'm oh, sorry. This is a series that I think asks you to look deeper at uh, at sex, sexual assault, and uh, gender. There is a battle of the sexes. What it meant in 1993 is not that different from what it means today. We were being entertained on the fodder of someone else's suffering. It's still going on. I didn't choose to be in the spotlight, but there's no going back. Uh, okay, well, that's Lorena, uh, and now we're going to move on to Leaving Neverland. And my first question for you guys is, Michael Jackson. I'm a huge fan of Michael Jackson's music. What about you guys? Were you Michael Jackson stands, or were you kind of like, eh? Again, for me, uh, not so much of a Michael Jackson fan, but a lot of a, a big Weird Al fan. What? Why is Weird Al like c- keep coming up in this conversation? Weird Al's a, Weird Al's <laughs> a big part of my life. Actually, my, my brother was really into Weird Al, and we actually met him once at a bas- uh, future shop What's when I was like? a kid. He's really nice. Very nice. He, he, my brother wore like a Hawaiian t-shirt, and you know, Weird Al signed it and stuff, so he's a very nice person. Um, but most of my understanding of Michael Jackson's music, it's filtered through Weird Al's covers of him. So that's where Needed. I'm, 
that's where yeah eat it and stuff like that um but that's where i'm coming from when it comes to knowledge of michael jackson really you, Chantal? um well first of all i am always going to ask you now for like the weird l version of anything <laughs> to see if it exists but i definitely grew up on michael jackson's music um I don't know if the nature of my fandom extended to me wanting to know everything about his life, but when it comes to, uh, you know, my parents playing his music on the weekend, you know, when, when I was like in the fourth grade and you, you know, you didn't go out to parties uh, at that age, but like that was the music that you understood to be like the good time music or um, at weddings. Just it, I absolutely grew up on that music. Um, yeah. His DNA is you know, so deeply ingrained yeah. in even how a lot of music is made today and has been mm -hmm. made ever since he had the career that he had. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, well, it, that's, that's, so that, that's leads me to my next question. It's just, just being a fan of his or just being influenced in some way by his music as, cause it has permeated throughout the culture so much. Does it change how you receive, uh, or does it change how receptive you are to the allegations that are made in this film and that have been made for years about him being um, a child molester. I'm going to say no, but I say no in the, in the, because I have, you know, unfortunately now with the point in time that we are now with learning things about a lot of uh, artists who we grew, grew up loving their work. Have, I've had practice, I guess, and just, mm. you know, being given the education about the kind of people that they were and have been and are. Um, and learning to do that balancing act of, or like the, you know, the the balancing act of whether or not it's worth separating the artist from the music when it comes to um, judging if you want to continue to consume and enjoy the work that they make. Matt, I know you're not a huge MJ fan, but I mean, his music will probably come on at some point at a wedding you go to. Um, actually, um, for a wedding that I'm planning currently. <laughs> That's right, yeah, or your um, wedding, in fact. <laughs> or, or my wedding, in fact. Uh, we actually spoke to a DJ recently when it came to setting up for music, and he mentioned specifically that you said, well, I'm assuming no MJ, no Michael Jackson. And we said, yeah, probably not. I don't think so. Right. Imagine, so, like, it's that, it's it, that much, like, it's that pervasive that, yeah. you know, radio stations not playing his music anymore. Mm. Wedding DJs all over the world not doing it are at asking the question. Yep. Either asking the question or saying, you know, in my practice as a wedding DJ, I will no longer play his music. Yeah. It's just um, because you know you, you have people on a dance floor and then suddenly a Michael Jackson song comes on. Some people will keep dancing. Some people will be like, oh, awkward moment. Awkward. At the awkward. Wedding. Yeah. It, it makes you just sort of think about the allegations. And um, well, I guess yeah. we should talk a bit about the allegations because. Um, to be honest, the first time I'm hearing about these two gentlemen specifically, Wade Robson and James Safechuck. Uh, Chantal, can you just tell us a bit about them at all? Um, so the first half of the doc introduces us to both of them. Um, one, Wade Robson, one of whom um, many viewers may already know from you know his career as a, a choreographer, a very successful one in Hollywood in the 20, 25 years since. Yeah, I worked with NSYNC and Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. um, but you learn that from a very young age, they were fans of Michael Jackson in the way that we understand, like the first thing that we think of when we think of a, a fan or a stan. You know, you know all of their dance moves. You know, you dress like them. You And at this age, you know, these are two young boys who in both cases wanted to be entertainers and wanted to dance to his music and wanted to meet him and did 
um, and then came across the experience that you that most you know fans of that age never get, where not only do you get to meet him, but then you know he asks you to get on stage at a concert that he plays in your hometown, or mm-hmm. to go visit him um, on his Neverland Ranch, and then he visits you at their house, and then it evolves into something else. The days were filled with magical childhood adventure experiences. Playing tag, watching movies, eating junk food, anything you could ever want as a child. It's like hanging out with a friend that's more your age. What was the most troubling aspect of their stories, Matt? I think one of the most troubling aspects of James's story was when he had gone in to do just that first Pepsi shoot with Michael Jackson. So he had gone in, didn't know who he was, wasn't really a fan of his music. And, you know, he meets him for the first time. Michael Jackson gives him all these presents, sort of, um, you know, gives him all these free things, like giving candy to a child, introduces himself in that sort of context, saying, like, I'm a person who is, like, a big pop star, and I will give you things for free. And to a little kid, that's like, oh, great. Like, I have a really cool jacket now. I have a, like, I've made a big celebrity friend. And, of course, they're going to be sort of charmed by that. Um, but then, as you mentioned, that, that evolves. That evolves into him saying, okay, well, I'm not just going to give you a coat. I'm not going to give you just that. I'm going to give you my friendship. I'm going to give your parents hope that they'll be able to get help from me to help you succeed as a little actor. And, you know, I think it's the most disturbing part of that is just the way in which he uses or he used his money and his power to get into the lives of these people and then eventually, not necessarily turn, but isolate the children from their parents. Chantal, what troubled you the most watching this doc from our perspective today? Um, I guess this is the one where, you know, with Lorena, I didn't have access to the story at the time as it was happening. Um, this one, though, it would be irresponsible for me to say that, like, I hadn't heard, and most of us we'd probably be in a similar position to say we ha- it's not as though we didn't know to some extent what was going on um i might have been able to tell myself well he was acquitted or like you know pro- something weird is probably going on but i'm just not going to think about it too hard and that that was my teenage years that was my early 20s that was um the case for you know, most of my life until I didn't think about it anymore. And then I watched this series, Wade and Wade and James, uh, their on-camera interviews go into such graphic detail um, regarding the abuse that they, that they endured um, for years. The way that they deliver it, the way that they talk about it, um, it's not just the detail, but just like the, the, seeing how they still grapple with a lot of the emotions that um, they must have been feeling as kids and how it's affected them for the rest of their lives. Uh, And their families. And their families was really difficult to watch. Um, When you have a pretty good sense that someone, I mean, knowing what I probably should have known and should have told myself about this story for many years and then understanding in very much, in like a lot of detail, in quite a bit of detail, the ways in which it breaks families apart and ruins people. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, and you know, I said I didn't know these two gentlemen uh, before seeing this doc. I didn't know about their their stories. I did know, obviously, that he had been uh, tried and acquitted uh, in 2003, and then he had uh, settled another lawsuit in uh, the early 90s. So there were other families. So there were other families. And other stories, probably very much like these ones. Yeah, and uh, I think part of the reason I chose to, I guess, not <laughs> factor that into my Michael Jackson fandom uh, is because he died in 10, 2009. Uh, he had been acquitted in that one trial. And I think I was just willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know why. I guess, again, because I was just a big fan of his music. There were other parts of his life that I found compelling. Just um, just his work ethic I always thought was really um, interesting. And, and uh, I've read books about him. And so I just really was an appreciator of his music so much that his these other darker parts of his life I didn't really want to think about. And uh, that's on me. Uh, and I think that's on a lot of us who, I guess... I just chose to to uh, to not believe these uh, these victims, and I and I I do believe James and Wade, and um, you know it's taken it's taken a long time for uh, I guess this uh, for I guess it's taken a long time for uh, this kind of reckoning to happen, but it's definitely necessary. I think it's interesting that you use the the phrase like choose not to believe because you know both of these docs. Um, and especially in the case with, with Finding Neverland, I don't get the sense that, you know, watching it, that either of these filmmakers are like the message is you should feel bad for. It's not accusatory. Um, it's more like this is here is a detailed account of what happened. And f- knowing what you know now after having watched this doc, I think if you continue to choose to not believe, then it's an act of denial. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't describe, you know, what my mindset about Michael Jackson was up until this point active denial it still wasn't obviously I should have known better but I, I wouldn't call it active but if I chose to tell myself from this point on mm, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep dancing at the weddings and I'm gonna keep thinking this thing about him then that's active um, or I'm gonna share this video on YouTube that yeah. tries to debunk every claim and in James and Wade's story. Yeah, no, there, there, there are certain people I've come across them uh, on social media that are, um, you know, they're just, they're diehard Michael fans and they're not going to, you know, believe that he did this no matter what you tell them. And that's, you know, that's on them. Uh, I, I personally believe uh, these survivors. There's no thoughts of this is wrong or anything like that. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing, he and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Secrets will eat you up. You feel so alone. I want to be able to speak the truth. I'll tell you personally, I I took down every Michael Jackson poster I had in my house. How many were there? <laughs> every single uh, one? I had, uh, I had a Jackson 5 poster framed. I had a Thriller uh, wall clock but was broken and I didn't throw them out, but I threw them in my locker, uh, in my storage locker. And I don't, uh, I don't listen to his music right now. But the, the thing though, is that when I remember watching guardians of the galaxy and that was the first time I ever, ever heard a Jackson five song, 
So, you know, like that I... That was the first time you heard I Want You I'm Back? I'm sure yeah. you've heard a Jackson 5 song before that. Maybe, And didn't but, know you were, you were listening to one. Like, that, yeah. that's how... But, but but this was the first time, and I realized that the, the kid who was singing in the song was Michael Jackson. And, you know, I can still listen to that song for whatever reason, and I think that song is okay. I, I don't know what the difference is between that and, say, Bad, or, you know, his songs when he was older... But for whatever reason, that song in the context of that film is still fine. Mm. Maybe it's because he was a kid at the time. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are stories of his past of the abuse that he had gone through mm -hmm. when he was younger. Um, but his songs when he is older, the songs where he is in the process of actually abusing other kids. Um, I think that's music that I probably won't listen to. Um, so that's interesting being able to, I guess... Um differentiate between music that Michael made, I guess, during and after he was abusing children versus music he was doing before. Yeah. But it, it's hard to know, you know, when that started and when that ended, but, you know, it, it's, I think you have to be, as you know, Chantel said, if you know the story and you're still a diehard fan, you're kind of in denial yeah. about the actual things that had happened in his past. Uh these allegations, as we've said, aren't new. Uh, they've been around for a while. Why do you think people are finally starting to listen, Chantel? I think Me Too has a really big uh, role to play in that. Um, but I think, and I, this isn't—I mean, this isn't only about the way that we're about, you know, culturally reevaluating the way that we believe or don't believe whose who's survival stories we believe, what kind of survival stories we believe. Um, that's changing. I think a part of it, too, is just this, like, darker side of... Maybe darker side's maybe not the right way of putting it. We're really happy to talk about nostalgia and 90s nostalgia when it comes to happy stuff. You know, Disney movies being remade, Space Jams being remade. That's fun to talk about. Um... This is a different kind of nostalgia where we're being asked to reevaluate something, and it's also something that's been coming up a lot, but um, isn't really quite as fun to talk about. Well, and it's not even the only one. So, I mean, we've talked about leaving Neverland and, and Lorena, but I kind of want to broaden this out because, I mean, there's also surviving R. Kelly. There's also the Clinton affair. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of podcasts like that look back at scandals from I guess the the 90s and and I just wonder if it's a coincidence that all these are coming out now post me too I, I wonder if it has to do with just the, the the breadth of the media that exists from that time so I noticed in both of these films that there's a lot of archival footage being That's used right, yeah. there's a ton of news reporting there's a ton of newspaper clippings there's a ton of just you know putting reporting on screen I, I think it's it's taking everything that had been said back then, using that as a resource and then fact-checking that. I think that's where, you know, a, a lot of the content from these films come from. It's from, you know, we have all this 24-hour news, news cycle sort of footage. Let's examine it. Let's see what's right, what's wrong, and sort of give that back to the people who consumed it at the time without thinking about, you know, whether or not this was right or wrong. Not everyone's watching, like, Howard Stern or Geraldo, but when you watch these things kind of next to each other and you see just what kind of image of Lorena Bob and John Wayne Bobbin is get, coming across, it starts to make sense. Oh, this is actually pretty messed up, what's being said. 
Um, we're starting to look back at art from 25 years ago, 50 years ago in our current context and seeing problems with it. Something, so think of something like a John Hughes movie where all the characters are white and if there are people of color in it, they're stereotypes or something like that. And, you know, we're looking at the media kind of the same way. We're looking at the media from 25 years ago and being sort of critical of how uh, Lorena Bobbitt's trial was covered or how uh, the media looked at Michael Jackson, the Michael Jackson case, uh, how they treated Monica Lewinsky. I just wonder if it's fair of us to judge media from 25 years ago by the standards of today. What do you guys think of that? I think we can. I think so, too. I mean, in both cases, the way that these stories were covered had such a profound effect on what we understood them to be our understanding of the story now, like the reason why it needs to be recorrected in many cases, the reasons why it needs to be, needs to be recorrected is because the story, like the product was flawed to begin with. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Did they, do you think they had more money back then? Oh yeah. Yeah. Broadcast certainly had more money back then. Right. Everybody had more money. Back it was then. more ad revenue. More ad yeah. revenue yeah. for that too. I mean, yeah. No, the media landscape has definitely changed and, um, you know, I think social media has obviously opened up uh, more voices, you know, more marginalized voices now are able to speak out. And, and um, I don't know if it necessarily connects to these docs, but I think I, cer- I certainly think it's created an awareness around issues of race and gender that uh, the mainstream media maybe didn't have because there weren't those voices weren't really included back then. So when we were talking about Lorena, like I said earlier, you know, I think a lot of the decisions were probably being made by, you know, white men who, you know, were looking at that case through a certain viewpoint and the voices of women and even people of color, you know, because Lorena was uh, Latina. Uh, yeah, weren't... It uh, was, is. Yeah, so, they, you know, they, I don't think there were probably as many uh, working in uh, newsrooms back then. It's still pretty, it's still not great even now. But I think social media has sort of um, been a catalyst for change in terms of how we look at these, uh, at these issues today. Something that you see in documentaries once in a while is that you will have a documentary, let's say a news documentary, and then you have like a a series of streeters where they're talking to people. So what do you think about this issue? And usually you get two or three people who have a reasonable take on what's happened. They'll say, oh, well, you know, Lorena Baba did this, you know, you know, I'd like to understand what the context was behind it. You know, they'll come off as being a reasonable person, but then you'll have a streeter where there's a crazy person who just says something just totally off the wall that's just just nuts. YouTube is that person now. <laughs> so YouTube has given a platform to all of those crazy people with their, you know, conspiracy theories, with their ability to say, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe James or um, Wade. Like, I'm a super Michael Jackson fan. My perspective is right. Everyone else is wrong. I'm going to just totally just just deny everything. And suddenly they have 300,000 people listening to them. In the media, media landscape back then had to do that through a streeter. They had to go and find that person in a crowd and talk to them. Now that person can say, I don't have to go to the media. I can just go straight to YouTube or Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Vine, not Vine anymore. TikTok. TikTok. They can go there and then just say whatever they want yeah the so usual, that's that's been a shift usual gatekeepers aren't there anymore so it's kind no. of a mixed blessing i guess yeah um are there any cases are there any cases you think we're going to look at 25 years from now in a different light 
I can think of one. What's Which that? one? Judge Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford would probably be something I think the media or maybe a documentary filmmaker will look at in well, a few decades. And well, we're looking at Anita Hill right now. Yeah, Clarence Thomas. So that's something that you know we're we're looking at the the same kind of case today. Yeah, and yeah, certainly you know ten years from now, fifteen years from now, there may be a documentary about you know what happened with the Kavanaugh hearings. But does it have to wait that long? <laughs> I do think that there is a little bit more awareness about that case that maybe didn't. Nobody's making jokes about Christine Blasey Ford. No one's serious anyway. Yeah. And uh, definitely there was a lot more activism, you know, trying to push for Kavanaugh to not get, um, what do you call it, acclaimed or confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about media, like I think the enduring image, at least for the next 25 years of that case, is going to be the photographs that were taken, you know, like that iconic image of Ford uh, swearing swearing in yeah. before giving her testimony. That was on front pages everywhere, and that's going to be the enduring thing that we take away, or at least like the first thing that a lot of people are going to think of when they go back to that time. And his angry face, too. <laughs> what image did we have of Lorena for the past 25 years? Yeah. Um, it probably wasn't even an actual image of her, but like a character from a Weird Al, a Weird Al video. Yeah. yeah. So, final thoughts here, guys. Uh, are there any takeaways you'd like to share with our listeners about both Lorena and leaving Neverland? Uh, second looks, nostalgia, the passage of time has been like a really big thing for what makes these docs what they are and and what they're trying to do which is helpful and time does help us look at things differently, but maybe next time it shouldn't take 25 years. Agreed. Cardinal rule of in journalism of not jumping to conclusions is something that was definitely broken in in both instances. So I think a careful examination of that has been very in these documentaries has been very interesting for me as a journalist to um, examine as well. Well said. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. This was good. Yeah. Thanks. And that's our show. Thanks, Chantel and Matt, who also produced this podcast. Thanks to our podcast manager, Hannah Sung, and our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>